Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host, Teresa Kuhn. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio, 1370 AM, streaming live at Talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at LivingWealthyRadio.com. Someone you know have children with food allergies. Have you ever wondered why food allergies seem to be so much more common now than just a few years ago? Why does the U.S. spend more on health care than any other country in the world and have one of the highest rates of disease in the world? And why do we have to worry about the food we feed our children potentially harming them or even endangering their lives? What, if anything, is wrong with our food supply and how can we protect our health, and the health of our families. Our guest, Robin O'Brien, is a whistleblower, author of The Unhealthy Truth, and an expert on genetically modified or GM foods. She's been called the Erin Brockovich of the food industry due to her eye-opening research, and her story can really help us better understand what's going on and how we can change it. Robin, I saw your TEDx um, video on YouTube some time ago and was so impressed with your story because you didn't start out being uh, what one would call a health nut or really that concerned about what's in our food, right? No, I was actually pointed in the opposite direction. I was a financial analyst. Um, I worked on a team of about seven absolutely great guys um, as an equity analyst, and we managed billions in assets. And I was the only woman on the team, and so they had me cover the food industry. So the details that I knew about food had to do with financial models. I had always totally dismissed anybody that was sort of sensational or alarmist, um, anybody that was talking about all of these things. I had always just dismissed it because I, I definitely was of the mindset that someone must have done the homework on this. You know, surely the things that are on our grocery stores shelves have been tested. There has been long-term human health studies conducted. And so when I came into this, into this work, um, I came from that background, you know, of a financial analyst who would cover the food industry. And as a mother of four who um, really, you know, up until I had my fourth child, really hadn't had any reason to, to really focus on anything in particular in food. I was a busy mom, and as any mother knows, it's hard enough just, just to feed your kids. You definitely don't want anybody telling you what to do or what to feed your family. No, in fact, just preparing the meals for four, for, for, right, for a family of four kids, um, just getting something in their mouth that ev- anybody or all the kids would, would like, right, and eat, is a challenge. It was a total challenge. And so, you know, as most moms do, you sort of default to what you grew up on. And so, you know, we grew up in Texas and ate normal foods, the foods everybody else was eating. I, I truly didn't think twice about it. Um, they looked the same. They had the same, in a lot of cases, they had the same labeling. You know, it was the same logo. Everything was still the same. So the fact that I wasn't questioning it really was not unusual. I mean, nobody really was. You know, nobody was really paying attention until one morning over breakfast when our youngest child had this allergic reaction. And, I mean, again, I was so unfamiliar with what a food allergy looked like, what a reaction looked like that I, I thought, you know, maybe the other three kids had put something in her face. It truly, I, I mean, we didn't grow up with kids with food allergies. We didn't have nut tables in our cafeteria growing up. I was not familiar with a food allergy. How long ago and was that? Is, that was in 
that is really what started me down this path is that as her face started to swell shut, you know, and I'm looking at the older three and I'm thinking, you know, did, did you guys spray something in her face when I turned my back? You know, what's going on with this kid? And then it got very severe very fast. And as we raised her to the pediatrician's office, you know, we get her in there and she's, she's getting everything under control and she's asking what I fed the kids for breakfast and she starts talking about food allergies. And, you know, at that point in time, this was 2006, it becomes so common today, but at that point in time they were still so spaced out and few and far between. But, you know, all I could think was, how can a child be allergic to food when you need food to live? And what's going to happen to this baby if she can't eat certain foods, you know? And so coming out of this financial background and this analytical background, you know, once we got everything under control that day, I felt totally uncomfortable in this, on this new landscape of food allergies. I didn't know what they were. You know, I wasn't sure what the data was. I didn't know how many children were affected. And so every part of the analytical part of me just went off and wanted to try to dig into the numbers and try to understand it because, you know, it, it had been easy to dismiss because, again, you just think, how can a child be allergic to food? I mean, the logic, it, just, it was so hard to absorb that. And so that morning, you know, as I was digging into the data, it was absolutely stunning to me to see how quickly certain conditions had come on to the health of American children. And food allergies was one of them. The data was saying that from 1997 until 2002, there had been a doubling of the peanut allergy. The CDC later came on to say that from 1997 to 2007, there had been a 265% increase in the rate of hospitalizations related to food allergic reactions. So. Upticks like that, analytically, they don't fall out of the sky. You know, what is the trigger that suddenly was causing all of these kids to see food as foreign and launch these inflammatory attacks on, on, on food, you know? And really in those early years, then that question started to sort of, sort of form in my mind of, are they allergic to food or has something been done to it? And that whole first year, I really was trying to get a hold of food allergies. I was trying to understand the data. I was trying to figure out ways to protect her, learning about all these new medical devices that we were going to be required to have. It's a complete tsunami of information, you know, to, to literally protect the life of my child. And as I kept trying to understand food allergies, I had this old habit, you know, of having been an analyst where I would, you know, track ticker, ticker symbols and follow certain headlines and, there were certain categories and industries that I had always followed. And so using that same protocol, I set up a system to really try to understand the food allergy space. And so I was setting up these morning alerts on food allergies and news and research and everything else. And one morning in the fall of 2006, this headline popped out um, about a small study that the EPA was going to fund at a university in Michigan. And the title of the study was, you know, along the lines of, do genetically engineered foods cause food allergies? And I'm thinking, what's a genetically engineered food, you know? And so I start peeling that back because I'd never heard of genetically engineered foods. I reach out to the researcher, you know, again, because I don't come out of the medical world. So I'd spend a lot of time reaching out to doctors and scientists and allergists and researchers. So I reached out to this guy. I said, okay, fill me in here. You know, my child's got this life-threatening reaction. What are genetically engineered foods and what are you going to be studying here? And he said, you know, we introduced these foods into the food supply in the 1990s, and no animal testing model existed. So we could compare known allergens to the existing known allergens that are in the food supply, 
but the creation of new proteins and new allergens that might occur in this new technology, this new process called genetic engineering, that's the part we don't have any tests for. So he was going to be looking into how can we better test this stuff to ensure that it's not causing allergic reactions. So, Robin, if I may interrupt for a moment. Um, first of all, the definition of food has been expanded, right? What we understood as food growing up is very different today than what is defined as food. Well, exactly, and as somebody who covered the industry as a financial analyst, you know, I knew why they were taking out real ingredients like real colors and putting in artificial colors. Why why is that? It helps drive margin. You know, it is way easier for a company to mass produce an artificial yellow color than it is to derive it naturally, you know, out of something that occurs naturally in nature. Um, And so, you know, again, these are business models. And so they figured out ways to swap out the real stuff and swap in these artificial ingredients. They figured out ways to get cows to make more milk by pumping them full of these artificial growth hormones, you know. And, And as a business model, strictly as a business model, it makes perfect sense. But countries around the world, including every single one of our trading partners, for example, when that artificial growth hormone was injected into cows to help them make more milk, it made the cows really sick and it caused mastitis and clinical lameness and all these different conditions that required an increase in antibiotic use and all kinds of medications. So literally every single developed country around the world said, we don't want to eat that stuff. We don't want it going into our cows. We don't want it going into our milk, into our cheese, into our ice cream. And so they said, no, thank you, back in 1994 when that was introduced. And that's not something that when you pick up a block of cheese or when you grab a carton of yogurt, it's not obvious. So you know, here we all were grabbing the cheeses we grew up on, you know, the singles, the yogurt pot, you know, everything that we grew up on, having no idea that this artificial growth hormone was now in it. And those types of changes, you know, they started probably the most prominent one was the introduction of high fructose corn syrup, which on the same day in 1984, Coke and Pepsi announced, hey, we're going to move out of sugar, we're going to switch into high fructose corn syrup. And it was because it was a cheaper ingredient to use than sugar. And, you know, Coke and Pepsi is like the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, they're not going to agree on anything ever, hardly. And here you had both those companies on the same day announcing together at some joint press conference that they were going to swap into high fructose corn syrup. Because it was this artificial ingredient, it was better for their margins, better for their shareholders. So as business models, I got it. But what had started to happen was, you know, beginning with high fructose corn syrup, marching on through these artificial dyes, through these artificial growth hormones, and then to these genetically engineered ingredients, Suddenly our food was full of a lot of different things that literally hadn't been in it a generation ago. And that question of are we allergic to food or what's been done to it kept coming back. So so many things I can, I can um, ask you about uh, up to now, but l- let's go with the, our, our trading partners and other countries around the world that had um, – that had said no to the uh, hormones that were being given to the cows. Why did the United States say no? Why were we the only country who accepted this hormone uh, being injected into our milk supply? You know, there there are a couple different reasons. Um, We have a standard here in the U.S that we say things are allowed into our food supply until they're proven dangerous. 
whereas other countries take what is called a precautionary approach, and they say, we will not allow something into our food supply until it's proven safe. So in the U.S., you know, the um, part of the issue is that, you know, and this is it's a budget issue that's age-old, um, but it's, you know, how are we spending our money at the federal level? And the FDA has does not have any kind of budget to conduct any kind of independent safety testing. So it relies on industry to provide the safety testing for their own products. And, you know, I happen to have a grandmother who's 102 years old. She still lives in Louisiana. <laughs> and when I was telling her this, she was like, that's like the tobacco industry, you know, and that's exactly what it's like. So we had industry vouching for the safety of its own products. The FDA can't run any sort of independent testing to verify it one way or the other. Um, with the genetically engineered ingredients, there is no mandatory pre-market safety testing that's required. It's all voluntary. So we just had different measures in place um, where the bar was just lower than it was in other countries. So, you know, again, when I was looking at the way other countries were exercising this precaution, and, you know, they were saying it individually for each ingredient, but then one of the other concerns was the combination of all of these ingredients all together, and that is referred to as the synergistic toxicity. You know, what do these things do in combination? It's that thing from science class we all did as kids where you held two beakers, one in one hand, one in the other, they were totally fine, but when you poured them together, then it's smoke and it combusts. Well, that's synergistic toxicity. So those studies had never been conducted. And for that reason, countries around the world said, you know, we're going to exercise precaution, we're either going to keep this stuff out, or we're going to label it so that consumers can make an informed choice. And we just, we just took a totally different approach. So when it comes to labeling, though, there's been a lot of fighting in the food industry regarding what should or should not be labeled. And it doesn't well, seem like the consumers want you know, because members of the Grocery Manufacturers Association, which or all the companies I used to cover um, when I was an analyst, you know, they'll say, they'll, they'll just throw this fear that if we label these things, it's going to drive up food costs, and only people that are wealthy could afford to eat if these foods were labeled. They label these ingredients on their products for all of our trading partners, or they don't use them. So they've got a double standard. You know, we're not asking them to reinvent the wheel. If they can label these ingredients in the U.K., Australia, Japan, New Zealand, even in Russia and India and China, there is labeling on Kraft Mac and Cheese, then why in the world have they not introduced that same thing here in the United States? So I'm, I'm a little confused, though, because our standards, you say that our standards are so much lower for, you know, for assuring that the food supply is safe. However, on the other hand, or there's, no, there's not a big budget for that, right? And the, in, the FDA basically says, industry, uh, police yourself. However, the FDA has aggressively pursued those farmers who may share raw milk and farmers and food co-ops that share raw food or vegetables grown in their own gardens. So it seems like there's such a double standard that the... It really is, you know, and I think both need to be policed, quite honestly. I mean, if you're going to democratize it, democratize it. Um, and that, to me, is really what this is all about, you know. I mean, you look at the, you look at the crisis we're having with our health care system and the budget crisis that that's creating and the economic crisis that that's creating and how that is 
crippling, you know, profitability of certain companies because they've got employees that are just so sick or the kids are sick or productivity is lacking because the kids are sick, you know. How we can have that discussion while ignoring the fact that our food now contains all of these artificial ingredients that have never existed before, for which no long-term human health studies exist. Um, you know, I, I definitely am of the mindset, let's democratize this thing. And, you know, some will say, well, non-GMO is labeled, but why have you financially discriminated against one segment of the food industry? Democratize it. You know, let, let, it, let the data be out there. I mean, I'm a data nut, so, you know, I look at it like we should be labeling genetically engineered ingredients so that food corporations get an honest read on what consumer trends are, so that our farmers get an honest read and they know you know, where consumers are going with this and what they should be planting for next year. I mean, right now, ADM and Cargill, they're offering a premium to farmers that are growing non-GMO crops. So the more data that we can have, the more information we have moving forward to literally secure a food system that works for American corporations. So explain that a little bit more. You know, if you take a company like Chipotle right now, um, you know, they've made a huge public commitment to shifting to non-GMO. Um, and the problem is that that supply chain is super thin and narrow here in the United States. So they have to outsource that opportunity to farmers in other countries. And Romania is a country that has a lot of non-GMO. China is another country that has a lot of non-GMO. And you look at that entire economic opportunity being outsourced to Romania and China, you know, and I think about that. I'm like, here we know we've got American farmers who are saying, I am deeply concerned about these genetically engineered crops because they are requiring record amounts of weed killers and toxic chemicals, and it's not working. You know, in over half the states around the country, our farmers are reporting these things called superweeds, which have developed in resistance to the chemicals in these crops. So rather than sitting down with the data with the American farmer and saying, this is what we need, you know, whether you're Chipotle or whether you're Kroger or whether you're Safeway, any of these companies that are just seeing exploding demand in this sector, instead of offering that opportunity to U.S. farmers, they're outsourcing it to the countries where the priority has been on non-GMO and the priority has been on, you know, growing crops without genetically engineered technology and all the chemicals that are required to produce it. So the largest provider of these agrochemical and biotechnology products that these farmers here in the United States have been using is Monsanto. How, you know, what's the influence, in your opinion, that Monsanto has over the FDA and the government regulation regarding the food supply and the farmers? You know, I mean, I think, I think in any industry, um, when you have one or two companies that become so powerful and can really um, exercise such an influence over uh, an industry is not in the best interest for anyone. I mean, we've, we saw that with airlines, you know. We've gotten, we've whittled down to such a narrow scope that, you know, the consumer definitely is not benefiting from where the airline industry is today. Um, you know, you look at a company like Monsanto, and they'll say they're a team player because they license out their patents or they license out um, the use of their products to some of their competitors like Syngenta or, or Dow or DuPont. Um, but I, I think that they exert such influence, and they have such a huge position 
over the industry that, you know, again, the barriers to entry are enormously high. And that is not in the best interest of the industry. It's not in the best interest of American farmers. And that's definitely not in the best interest of food companies or the consumer. So, you know, what, what measures need to be put in place to lower those barriers to entry so that you can have a vibrant, competitive marketplace in this space? And then we really will get the best technologies for the American farmer and for the global food system. We'll get the best technologies forward um, when you have the kind of dominance that we see today. And, you know, what's unique about this one is that the technologies are protected under patent law. So, you know, where Monsanto loves to claim that all of these things are substantially equivalent, that they look, taste, and smell the same, at the same time, genetically engineered corn is regulated by the EPA as a pesticide because of its ability to produce its own insecticidal toxins internally within the plant. And then at the same time, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office also grants patents on the unique novel characteristics and traits of these crops to the patent holders. So, you know, really, um, it's, right. it's, I think it's a fascinating business model to study. So, Robin, can you please repeat what the EPA labels genetically modified corn as? I think that's really, really important. It, uh, to me, it is really important, you know, and I think, you know, people love to say that this is a, this, this, there's more science than has ever been done before on any crop, and they love to try to take it on to a science playing field. This is simply give us the information. And when you consider the fact that it's called BT corn, it's been genetically engineered to produce its own insecticidal toxin. And the reason that they did it was because there was growing concern of the spraying of insecticides over agricultural fields. So using this new technology, they were able to literally engineer that insecticidal toxin into the seed of the corn plant. So that as it grows, it releases its own insecticide. So any consumer knows, you, know, you rinse your veggies, you rinse your fruit, you cannot rinse it out of the DNA of a corn plant. And for that reason, EPA said this has to be regulated by the EPA as a pesticide. So, you know, any consumer, if you saw those two pieces of corn sitting on your kitchen table, you wouldn't be able to identify which was which. I simply want to know which one is regulated by the EPA as a pesticide. And, and this is what we're eating. This is what our children are eating. This is so outrageous. We're going to go well, to break. Um, our guest today is Robin O'Brien, and we are discussing the changes that have been made to our food supply in the past generation and the health crisis that it's caused. And we are going to dig even deeper and discuss practical solutions when we return from our quick break. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. If you're just now joining us, we are speaking with author and GMO expert Robin O'Brien about what has changed our food in the past couple decades and how we can protect the health of our families. So, Robin, just before the break, we were talking about the, um, the corn today. That is, the EPA has 
um, basically um, said that the corn, the genetically modified corn that has an insecticide, is is an insecticide. It's not. It, it's what you would spray crops weeds with, and so basically a poison, right? I mean, if we go to Home Depot or Lowe's and and we buy some weed killer, it says on the package, danger, right? Do not eat, do not put on your skin um, because it's poison, but we're eating this poison. Well, exactly, you know, and I mean, as any parent knows, you are told to not store something like Roundup weed killer under your kitchen sink. I mean, any parent knows that you know, to keep it out of the reach of children. But that is the exact same product that these genetically engineered crops have literally been genetically engineered to withstand. They're called Roundup Ready crops. So they are ready to withstand Roundup. So that is what is being routinely sprayed across our food crops in record amounts, you know. And, I mean, I can guarantee you I did not want to know this. I did not want to know this. I grew up in Texas. I ate all this stuff. I ate all this stuff through all four pregnancies. I was not looking to know this at all. And when I did learn it and started asking some really basic fundamental questions, you know, um, I kind of joke, like the food industry kind of had an allergic reaction to me because I was starting to ask all of these questions that they really did not want anybody to bring up. Um, and that was, you know, it was fascinating. But I think, you know, they'll say they're safe, they're safe, they're safe. And, you know, anybody who's sounding the alarm on this is an alarmist. Well, are you telling me that 60% of the world's population, 64 of our trading partners and over 20 others, 64 of them have labeled these ingredients because of the unknown, and over 20 more have banned them altogether because of that unknown. So, you know, again, when you step back and you kind of look at it through a global lens, it's a technology that's been introduced only in the last 20 or so years, which, you know, with no long-term human health studies, and you really start to look at what is happening quickly to the health of the American people. Um, I, you know, I'm an analyst. I came out of that background, so I know correlation is not causation. I'm not saying correlation is causation. What I am saying is correlation of this magnitude merits an investigation. And when you have a 265% increase in the rates of hospitalizations related to food allergic reactions over the exact same 10-year period that this stuff was introduced, it merits investigation. And while we're investigating, it merits labels. So this round of corn... Let's just think about this. It's not only the ear of corn that we're eating, right? It's the, I'm in Texas, so it's the chips, the tortilla chips that's got corn. It's the feeds that um, the farmers are giving their cows and their cattle and um, that goes into our food supply in the form of meat that we buy. Right. Right. And so, you know, like a company like Chipotle, what they're trying to do through this, you know, announcement that they made was, you know, they, they were like, okay, we got to kind of take out the low-hanging fruit. We'll get the soybean oil because soy is genetically engineered. We'll get the soybean oil out of the products, you know, and then they're working on the chips. And, you know, then they realize, like, they've got to somehow find feed for those chickens and for the, for the beef. And the supply doesn't exist it's big enough to support a chain like Chipotle here in the U.S. So who's benefiting from that? They're going overseas to other countries to source that supply. And I look at that as such a lost economic opportunity for the U.S. economy and for the U.S. farmer. Well, doesn't the U.S. government subsidize our farmers? They do subsidize the farmers that choose to 
use the genetically engineered crops. And so, you know, again, when you talk about a level playing field economically, it is not there. And, you know, more than anybody with four little kids, I was totally irritated by the high price of organic food. And when anyone would suggest that I would eat organic, it just totally rubbed me the wrong way because I really thought it was a category for lifestyle, the rich and famous, or maybe some hippie thing, you know. And when I started looking at the financial structure of our farm system and the fact that the crops that are grown with genetic engineering and all of these chemicals, those farmers receive subsidies, but not just that. They don't just get this support from the government. They also get crop insurance, and they also get marketing support. So all around that business model, they're supported financially, where if there's a farmer that wants to grow things organically, which means by law they are not allowed to use genetically engineered crops and the chemicals applied to them, they have to pay a fee to prove that their stuff is safe, and then they have to pay a fee to label it. And then they don't get the marketing, and they don't get the insurance support. So their entire cost of production is much higher. And, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm sitting down with a food company, sitting down with consumers. If you could neutralize that, if you could say, if pricing were not an issue, which one would you choose? People would choose the food without the chemicals. But as taxpayers, we haven't give, been given that choice. You know, imagine if when you were paying your taxes, you got to check a box saying, do you want to support chemically intensive agriculture or do you want to support this clean agriculture that makes this food more affordable to everybody? You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious what people would check. So, you know, again, I think for the American citizen, you know, it's, it's a challenge because there is so much that has happened in the food industry in the last 20 years that we just we didn't get schooled on. Robin, I have been studying food and health and nutrition for over 20 years plus, at least. And it's something that I dedicate a whole lot of time to. And the show is about bringing information to the public um, about lifestyle. I work with money. That's, that's my thing. But this is an act of love. Um, I know what you're telling me, I hear it, and I am outraged, even though I've known this forever. I am outraged, This, and I'm sad. It's I know, you know, I, mean, I really, I went through so many emotions. You know, I was raised in such a conservative family in Texas, and it challenged so much more than how I navigated the grocery store. You know, it challenged how I felt about so many different things on so many different levels, um, you know, with this grandmother that's 102, you know, is really, is this what our grandparents fought for? Um, is this what my dad, who was in the Vietnam War, is this what he was fighting for? You know, when he was fighting for our freedoms, one of the most fundamental freedoms we can have is to know what's going into our food. And how can you protect your, your family? And how can you take personal responsibility for your health if you don't have full information on what is going into your food? And so, you know, personally, obviously, I struggled with, do I really have to be the one to step out and talk about this? You know, um, I really struggled with that decision. And I couldn't not do it. And the way that I saw it was truly this is one of the most patriotic things that we can be doing. What kind of pushback do you get from the corporations? You know, it's been enormous and it's been consistent. Um, and, you know, what, what I've learned is that, you know, um, now – you know, when a pushback comes, I've usually hit on a talking point that they really don't want people to hear. Um, 
And, you know, again, I have always looked at this as a business model. And if you just look at it that way, if you just look at Monsanto as a chemical company trying to sell their chemicals and expand their portfolio into seeds, it's a brilliant business model for a chemical company. You know, for the rest of the food industry that suddenly had to absorb it, it's not so great. You know, so here we've got now all these big food companies that are still trying to sort of defend the use of these genetically engineered ingredients. Meantime, you know, a company like Kellogg is seeing quarter after quarter of earnings drop. You know, they're laying off percentages of their employees. You know, they're getting hammered from every side because they continue to use these ingredients in their products. And then you see a company like Kroger say, okay, we're going to introduce a private label brand that doesn't include a whole bunch of these artificial ingredients and a whole bunch of this stuff. And that, that private label brand goes from zero to a billion in revenue in a two-year period, you know. So, you know, as, as, as gut-wrenching as it can be, you know, if you can stomach it, then you realize there is enormous opportunity to be part of the change. And that's what our country is good at is that you know, if something isn't working, we iterate and we change, you know. And so if you look at this as a technology, as a fairly new technology, the first patent was only in the 1980s. Um, most technologies go through a series of iterations before they get to anything that really is worth having around for a long time. And we're just not there yet. Um, the first two products, you know, one has been genetically engineered to withstand, to withstand Roundup, so it's Roundup-ready crops. And then the other is this corn that's genetically engineered to produce its own insecticide. There are a lot of promises that we need this stuff to feed the world. There are a lot of promises that are going to create all of these different models and all these different iterations that are going to, you know, cure different diseases. Those are forward-looking statements to shareholders. And if those are forward-looking statements, in the meantime, let's label these things so that we can see if they're actually doing what they promised to do. Because even in the first 20 years, the promise, was that introducing these genetically engineered crops would reduce the use of weed killers. There has been a 527 million pound increase in the application of those herbicides and those weed killers to these crops. So it didn't do what it promised. So there needs to be an accountability, there needs to be a traceability, so that if there is a liability, you know, that the companies that have introduced these things can be held accountable. And if you think about a company like Intel, they are so proud to label that Intel is inside the products that they're going into. You know? And they say, we can't control the whole system, but we are super proud of Intel inside, and we're going to stand by that every step of the way. Why isn't a company like Monsanto proud to say Monsanto's inside? You know, Rob and I, I have a legal background. I went to law school, and about 18 years ago, I discovered that what I had been taught about how money works and the legal system and the government was a big fat lie, right? Uh, and you talk about your father fighting in the war and your grandmother and your grandparents and our ancestors and, you know, the, the rights that they fought for in this country. Um, and Monsanto and these companies, I think, hide behind, and the government hide behind the word capitalism. But this isn't mm -hmm. capitalism. This is corporatism. Mm -hmm. Right. We're most no, capitalism. Capitalism is free markets and data and informed decision making. That's capitalism as I understand it. You know? as, as I. And that's what you're promoting. Corporatism is most of the wealth and power is concentrated in the hands of, you know, the giant corporations. And the government is used as a tool by these corporations mm -hmm. to consolidate the wealth and the power. What you're advocating is, hey, what I what I hear that you're advocating is, Hey, give the consumer a choice. 
give the consumer the information. You're not necessarily saying ban Monsanto or, you know, don't allow them to, to do what they're doing. Just give the consumers access to the information so they know they have the power to choose, hey, do I want the GMO or do I want something without the GMO? Right? Right. You know, let the free market decide. And if things are labeled with GMOs and you have that night after night and you continue to see a reaction in your child, then you know that that's what's causing the reaction. If it's not labeled, that mother is running blind. And, you know, we're not talking about a condition, you know, like obesity that that can build over time. A life-threatening allergic reaction can take out a child in nine minutes. And you look at the rates of the escalation of that condition alone. You look at, you know, just this fall, the emails and the pictures that I have been flooded with of what nurses' offices look like today, the emails from nurses themselves saying, oh, my God, three of my four kindergarten classes are stacked with these kids, you know. It is not what it was even ten years ago. Um, And I think that that is just an irrefutable truth. You know, when you look at the data of what is happening to the American children, something has to be done to address it. And it's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. To me, this is a fundamental human right to know what is in the food we are feeding our families. And if you do care about the health of our military, which I do, my dad was in it, you know, how are these kids going to be healthy enough to serve our country 10 years from now? You know, we have to step back a little bit and say, They may only represent 30% of the population, but they are 100% of our future. And what measures can we be putting in place today to ensure that that future is a healthy one? These little kids' bodies are being bombarded with all sorts of experimental chemicals, vaccinations, you know, in the name of food, in the name of health, uh, and it's epidemic, right? But we also see the adults. We also see, you know, the population in general, how the health has declined. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the President's Cancer Panel Report, which was formed under the Bush administration and the report released under Obama, so bipartisan, it announced that one in two men and one in three women are expected to get cancer in their lifetime. The CDC has reported that cancer is the leading cause of death by disease in American children under the age of 15. So, you know, people would love to say, well, that's because we've eradicated other diseases. One in two men are expected to get cancer in their lifetime. As one of the boys said at the breakfast table this morning, he said, Mom, that means I have a 50% chance of getting cancer. It's not acceptable, you know. And, again, I look at that, I'm like, what is the impact of that going to be on our society, on our families, on our corporations, on our economy, on our health care system, on our competitiveness in the global marketplace? It affects every single one of us. We all have Mm -hmm brothers, fathers, sisters, mothers, ourselves, right, our children. I mean, this is such a huge problem. It's, uh, it's, um, and they call you the Aaron Brockovich of the food industry. What are you doing to make a difference here? What exactly are you doing? Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time educating people, and, you know, I think, because of my background being both financial and coming out of Texas, I can reach an audience that normally didn't want to hear this, you know, and I was that audience. I didn't want to hear it. Um, so I, you know, I serve on the boards of a lot of nonprofits around children's health. The Allergy Kids Foundation is one that I started that's a 501c3. 
But then, you know, what I think is fascinating is how I continue to hear from these big public companies that have CEOs that have children with autism, you know, or they have a wife that's just been diagnosed with cancer. And like you said, no one is immune. These conditions are touching all of our families, regardless of where we are socioeconomically, regardless of what our job is. And I think this food awakening is happening where people realize we, ha- we have to be brave enough to start to make these changes. And those changes are requiring, demanding of the food industry to label their products? So that you know, in know. some cases, in some cases, I think it's labeling of GMOs, but given that no long-term human health studies have ever been conducted on these things, and one of the chief concerns was allergenicity, if I were the CEO of a food company, there is no way I would want to carry that liability on my balance sheet, especially when a company like Monsanto in their own SEC filings say they can't stand by labeling. So if the producer of the food is not willing to stand by the labeling, why should the food industry? I mean, if I were that CEO, I would say there's no way I want to label this stuff figure out how I can source non-GMO. And I think that's the shift we're starting to see. You know, you see Chipotle say we want non-GMO. You see Kroger expanding into that category. You see Cheerios, even though it was just token, token amount of the ingredients, Cheerios is saying, okay, we hear you, we're getting GMOs out. These companies don't want to label it. But, you know, if if they really are pushed by the consumer, I think what we'll start to see is this trend towards non-GMO where they just simply remove the ingredients altogether. What is the legal liability exposure that the um, agrochemical companies have, like Monsanto? Have they been able to get Congress to uh, shield them from lawsuits from the general population? You know, they're definitely um, they're br- they're brilliant companies. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, and they've been in the chemical industry for over 100 years. So it's not like they suddenly um, realize that they've got a product that is controversial on their hands. It's something they've been dealing with for the lifetime of the company. Um, but I think probably what I've heard from the legal, the legal area is that it's hard to isolate you know, especially given that these ingredients were never labeled in the first place, it's hard to isolate that they were actually the ingredient to cause harm. And so, you know, what we're starting to see is let's exercise precaution where we can. And at the very least, if these American companies have already removed these ingredients overseas or are labeling certain ingredients overseas, let's at least have that same standard here. We're not asking them to reinvent the wheel. So, you know, I think the industry... Because so many things have changed in our environment and so many, so many industries, you know, there's so many ingredients that are new to industries and new to the food industry, it would be so hard to isolate any one in particular. And what's fascinating, again, is that because of the patents on these ingredients, let's say, for example, Allergy Kids Foundation wanted to conduct a study. If I wanted to say, you know, hey, is my kid allergic to soy or this genetically engineered Roundup Ready soy? or is my little boy allergic to corn, or is he allergic to this genetically engineered corn regulated by the EPA as a pesticide? If I wanted to conduct that study, I'd have to go to Monsanto to get permission to use that patented product in my study. So I don't think they would want to grant that to someone like me. So in a way, you know, the patent protects, it protects a lot. Is that a special patent, or is that true for all patents? It's true for all patents, you know. Okay, so I can't use I can't use a, a, a chemical that's been patented in my study to see if it causes harm, but they're not requiring 
the patent holder to perform studies and prove that it doesn't cause harm once it's placed into the market or commerce. Yeah, they're saying that it's they're saying there are these voluntary measures in place and one of the things that's circulating right now, um that, you know, as we're seeing at the state level, the states are saying, okay, the federal government isn't doing anything on this. So at the state level, we're going to start to introduce labeling laws. And you've just seen a flurry of over 30 pieces of legislation introduced in states around the country. Well, again, I mean, if I was a CEO of a food company, I would say that is an absolute nightmare. That's going to be a patchwork of different legislations, and it's going to mean one thing in Colorado and another thing in Texas, and what a headache. I mean, nobody's going to want to do that. But in the absence of anything at the federal level, the states are coming in to fill this void. So, you know, I think um, what has been introduced, and it's soft at the federal level, is there should be mandatory um, testing required, you know, and then, of course, the Grocery Manufacturers Association is coming in and saying, let us decide how this regulation should proceed. Well, that's like asking the tobacco industry to regulate itself. Right, right. So we have just a couple minutes. Um, Real quick, what foods should our listeners watch out for the most? Well, you know, thankfully, it's only a handful of crops still on the market that have been genetically engineered, and the primary ones are corn, soy, canola, and sugar beets. So those can be found in any variation. Canola oils in a lot of things. Soybean oil is listed as vegetable oil or soy lecithin. That's in a lot of things. Corn can be in cornstarch, high fructose corn syrup. Corn is used in a ton of different things, and as we talked about, it's also fed to a lot of the animals that we eat. And then sugar beets has come on really hard and fast in the last couple of years, as an alternative to uh, for sugar. So, you know, um, it is something to be super mindful of. The only way that you can avoid it is to look for products that carry the non-GMO, it's a little butterfly logo, or that USDA organic seal. And, you know, my default is that USDA organic seal because that has a legal standard behind it, which I didn't know at the time. It by law means that those products are not allowed to be produced with artificial ingredients like GMOs genetically engineered ingredients, high fructose corn syrup, artificial dyes. It's its a true legal standard, and there's a legal accountability to it. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, for somebody who was so dismissive of it in the beginning, it's a shame that industry didn't do a better job of really explaining what that symbol meant um, in the early days to help, to help people understand, you know, not only that that's what USDA organic meant, but that also this is what was happening to our food. So, Robin, unfortunately, you had uh, a child that reacted, and that must have been just such a so scary. But in the bigger picture, in the bigger grand scheme, thank God that you're out there and you've got the, the background and the story that can relate to so many people, and you know this industry, and uh, you're a fighter, and you've got that, that energy uh, to make such a difference. And it's so important on so many levels. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today at Living Wealthy Radio. We will post this, uh, the recording of the show and also your information, your website, so people can check out your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio on Talk 1370 and streaming live at Talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at LivingWealthyRadio.com. 
This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The info being presented does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation and does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax advisor or legal counsel or other professional, and you should not use the information in place of a personal consultation regarding your specific situation or needs prior to taking any action based on this information. We believe the info provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.